Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29, a Peachtree Hoops podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis. We're recording on a Tuesday evening with the Hawks scheduled to play Milwaukee Wednesday. Uh, Glenn, I-, I have bad news personally. Okay. Uh, shortly here before my 50th birthday, I just found out that I have to do jury duty for the first time in my life. Like actually do it. Like every other time I've had jury duty, I've called the night before and gotten the excuse. Oh, you don't have to, you don't have to report. I actually have to report. Uh Oh, and, and, you know, to be fair, like I'm not like anti jury duty, but I will say this, my wife works nights and I've adapted my schedule to her. And so my normal sleep schedule is like 5 a.m. to noon. And when the Hawks have a a 10 a.m. shoot around, I take one for the team and get up early. But jury duty at 8 a.m., that's the middle of the night. I don't get to sleep. What is that all about? When when does it start? Uh, In hours. (laughs) Oh, in hours. Oh. In in hours. Yes, yes, yes. Well, see, see, now I feel badly that... Uh, I asked if we could record a little later than our original plan. So no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being a good friend and helping you at all here. So no, I mean, if I tried to go to sleep now, that'd be like a normal person trying to go to bed at like two in the afternoon. It just, you know, you could try, it wouldn't do anything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, our justice system needs good people to show up and participate and and all that sort of stuff. So yes, I, I, I trust that the, whatever, will be uh decided potentially before you will um be uh well served by your participation but i would uh, i would prefer to go to night court though preferably yeah yeah exactly um might be able to meet a a tall ball headed didn't we talk about night court in a recent episode at one point oh my god i hope not i think we did (laughs) i think we did (laughs) all right flip your coin the hawks offense or defense where do you want to go first um since the since the defense started uh poorly in the, in the last game i think we should start there all right so the, the hawks got out to a, a pretty nice start they were utilizing their big men against the switches pretty effectively they had what like seven point lead or something very early in the game right and, and then what happened to the defense well you know I put this out into the Twitterverse, but I, I said they looked like a team that uh, has too often been the case this year that was trying to figure out the exact amount of defense they needed to win this game and bring just that amount and not announce more, you know, could not give themselves any margin for, uh, you know, make maybe missing more shots than they normally do on offense. And all of these kind of random uh, factors and variables that happen in the NBA game, um, and so I just I just didn't think they were invested enough. They looked like a team that, you know, I like Kevin. I like watching teams that like to play defense, and <laughs> you know they've looked that way a few times this year potentially. You know, or at least where they cared. You know, I don't know how much they were enjoying it, but you know they just too often this year looked like a team that's only wants to play the amount of defense needed to set themselves up to win the game with their offense. And I thought that's exactly what I, what happened against the Pistons. And, you know, you and I talked about the Pistons 
I can't a few weeks ago about you know their team that despite their record, despite where they are in the standings, they play hard. And if you open the door, they're going to you know bring a full effort and try to get a win against you. And and I always feel funny talking like this because you would think I'm talking about a team that's 10, 12 games over 500, which the Hawks are not, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, but it's still a game they should have won. But I I thought the defensive effort was um, kind of calculated to be like what the team thought was just enough, and and that's just not going to serve you well uh, in the NBA over the course of a season. And that's just been too often the case what they've been doing this year. That's fair. Uh, Did you see it differently? No, I. I... I was sort of disappointed in what I saw from Gallinari. Like I thought he did a great job filling in while Collins was hurt. I don't know if it was, you know, not being familiar with his role after having left it for a couple of weeks or, uh, you know, just a natural letdown going back to the bench or something. I just thought his defense in particular was, uh, was lacking like in just a whole bunch of different areas. Like, when they made him the helper at the rim and then they just went out to his corner and it's like, I I think I've made the analogy before. It's like watching somebody try to go a block to catch a bus before it leaves. Like it's just, he's not going to get there, Right. but it was worse than usual. Uh, His transition defense, like if you're going to play lineups with Clint and Danilo and a bunch of wings and, and Trey young, you know, guys who aren't that big, like, you need him to get back in transition to give some sort of resistance at the rim because Clint's going to try to hit the offensive glass and he probably should, but you know, he, he wasn't getting back in transition defense. Like he was just getting lapped. And then just, I thought he was even like, like communication wise, like when he was in two man actions, it's like, it didn't feel like he was pointing things out, making things happen the way that, that they should, it felt you know, like you were saying, just kind of like, you know, doing the minimum to get by. It's like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll try to define, to defend it, but it didn't seem like he had that active, Hey, we're on top of this. Let's keep talking all the way through it. It just felt like there were times where there were just a lapse and kind of nobody went to somebody and, and things were open. I, I just, I thought it kind of started to go to, to haywire a little bit when he came in. Yeah, and I mean, and there's there's sometimes an adjustment. You know, he, he's been playing a lot of minutes with Clint, and then he played a good number of minutes without Clint in this game. And Akagwu missed, I can't remember one or two games, and they played basically small lineups for, you know, um, a, a really a lot for a game or two. So I mean, but these guys, I mean, this is they played what sixty something games somewhere <laughs> there this year. Even yeah. as they're kind of flexing into smaller lineups or traditional lineups, game to game or quarter to quarter, whatever it is, you know, this, this group has been together since the beginning of the season. They should be able to kind of handle that and, and adapt. And now, you know, if, if things like that are happening in the first month, month and a half of the season, I, I understand there's always for an NBA team, especially when there's a shortened preseason, I, I want to give a team some room for kind of um, have an opportunity to gel, have an opportunity to kind of, um, calibrate themselves to the different ways they're going to play. I mean, but this is far enough in the season where that just wasn't good enough. And, you know, the only players I saw kind of frustrated um, with their team was DeLon was the one that showed the most frustration from what I saw. There were a few times Hunter did, 
Um, and that, that was about it. I, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that Capella is always really invested on defense. You know, and I recall the possession late where he literally got three, <laughs> three stops and then no one could get the rebound, you know, and I'm sure, I'm sure bogey feels bad, badly, uh, about, um, not securing that rebound. I've I think said, he got, he got redeemed a little bit though. Cause that was the play in the last two minute report that said he, Hey, he didn't commit a foul there. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Um, and, um, uh, but I mean, Cade still made the bucket, you know, and yeah, um, it would have been a basket either way. Was it, yeah, one so it was just one, a one point <laughs> error there. Um, but I mean, I, I, you know, I said on this podcast that yeah, I feel like bogey has been the one leading by example, you know, out there and, you know, that I thought the, you and I disagreed on the, his sixth foul right there with what 1.6 left on Cade I I thought that wasn't a foul um but when I went back and watched that I I thought Clint fouled Bay I think it was like about four times before the ball was ever in (laughs) so do we have time for a sidebar sure in the NBA there there are the rules that everybody wants to change like if you watch a national NBA TV broadcast like it's always we've got to get rid of the take foul on fast breaks fast breaks are the things people want to see I've got one that needs to be changed Okay. The rule about inbound fouls, where if you foul before the ball leaves the inbounder's hand, and I hope I'm not getting that completely wrong, it's a technical exactly free right. throw and possession. Yep. That is a huge deterrent to referees to actually call it. And it happens all the time. Like it's it's just laissez-faire. Oh, the ball hasn't been inbounded yet. Do what you want to do because they're not gonna call yep. it. They should just make it go back and make it a regular foul again so that if, you know, teams play it straight up, they get rewarded for playing straight up. If teams make murder ball out of it, they get a foul. Right now, it's they get to do whatever they want and they get away with it. Like they will, it's just, they call maybe one in 30. Like it's, you know, I don't, you, Clint's doing the right thing there. Like he's playing the numbers. Like the odds are they're not going to call that. And I think that's a little bit why I was disappointed in, in, in that bogey thing. It's just, just, just play the numbers. Like it's one second left. He's got his back to the basket. You've got him buried in the corner. If he hits a turnaround from 25 feet and you get just, you know, an average clean contest, just, just clap. I mean, you're going to, you're probably going to get possession of the, oh, well, I guess there wouldn't have been they, the clock would have gone off. So I take that back. Right. But yeah. I just thought that was, I, I think part of it, well, I just thought that, it was an angle that that minimized it because you got the sideline angle and the action was coming toward you and you don't really see it. But then when they showed it from the perpendicular angle and you could kind of see body to body, he kind of like just hit him bumper cars wise. And, and that's why I thought it was a foul. But I do think in the main angle, you kind of look at it and say, yeah, that's really nothing. But anyway, just I just wanted to get that sidebar in about that rule because that rule needs to change. Go ahead. Resume. I'm sorry. No, I. I- but this is kind of where I have a bit of a different view in that I don't view that as an issue with the rules. I, I view that as a, an issue with the officials, like call the game according to the rules, you know, <laughs> and I know they're human beings and it's, you know, and, um, you know, I've been open about how I think the, the officiating has taken a, a pretty big step back across the league this year. I, I've never thought like, oh, they have it out for the Hawks or the Hawks are uniquely disadvantaged. I know the last, I think the last two minute reports have, um for whatever they're worth have kind of been um pretty um revealing about the fact that a lot of these calls have gone against the hawks this year i still don't think that's an official going out of the way 
Um, but I mean, my when I, you know, I feel like sometimes when I'm putting that out there that I, I feel like the officiating has really been an issue this year. I feel like it's kind of on me to spend some time thinking about, well, why might that be? And I just think these officials are overworked. Um, I, I think they're way overworked. And, um, it, you know, I think that's, to me, that's the most obvious likely cause. I don't have any data or, you know, any analysis around that. I just know I watch the NBA basically every night and I see the same officials, you know, night to night to night to night calling games in different cities. And I, I, just, I just think that's the, the primary issue there. Um, right. You know, so, but you I, know, I would say that I would just push back a little bit by saying, I think they have competing interests in that, you know, they've got the rule book and they're saying, you know, this is a foul, call this, this is a foul, call this. And they've also sort of got the edict, hey, keep the game moving. Uh, if you call too sure. many fouls, it slows down too much. So you've got to find that niche balance. And, and I, I think the inbounds play is just one where if you give them that technical free throw and then you start it all over again, it just feels like a slowdown. Like you'll you'll see once a game, like there'll be a, a late call on a shooting foul because the referee was waiting to see if the basket went in. And then when the, the ball right. slides off the rim and it's a miss, oh wait, you know what? I I, I gotta call a foul now because it didn't go in. And it's like you know, they have that 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 competing edict to kind of speed up the game. Sure. And, and I think yeah, I that's that's as much a factor as as just you know them getting it wrong. Yeah, and then maybe we'll, we'll wrap this up but, uh, on this one. But you know what would really help the officials? If the players stopped acting like every single time they get touched or every single foul is called on them is a terrible call or everything time, you know, they get hit and then there's not a call. It's like calm down. It's like how does that has to be super distracting <laughs> and just annoying. So, I mean, it's funny because the players, I, I feel like I can sit here and say the officiating been bad this year. And, and I'm not going to hammer them you know with personal you know criticisms or whatever i try to take a step back and think like well you know in the grand scheme of things what might be going on there but here's the thing the players want to sometimes complain about the officials and they intentionally mislead them and try to manipulate them and then complain when their calls are wrong it's like it's, it's like when someone's like lying to you or manipulating you and then you <laughs> believe them and then they make fun of you for believing something they it's like no, the players have no ground to uh, criticize the officiating because they're maybe the biggest problem, you know, uh, is you know the flopping and then all the complaining. And then, you know, if I have to watch one more time, you know, Jonas Valanciunas act like he got pushed in the back when he couldn't get a rebound, you know, and I'm just using him as an example. There's a whole lot more guys in the league that do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, Joel Embiid, who's, in my mind, the MVP this year, and is awesome, and I enjoy watching him play. But sometimes when he doesn't get the rebound, he just falls on the ground. And they call a foul, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's like, what, what you know? So the the players have no, basically. I should be the only one that is articulating whether the officiating is good or bad. I am completely unbiased, and I just give you know a straight up view. Players stop, and and anyone else that probably should just just be me. Fair enough. <laughs> so uh, that should never be the case <laughs> uh, you you had the tweet of the night last night as far as i'm concerned after the game where you know you mentioned that you know part of the reason that the hawks have trouble is that they face a lot of teams that don't want to play drop defense against them and that's kind of when they thrive uh 
you know, we've hit on this so many times this season, like when they come up against a team that is switching. And I thought they had some really good moments running offense against the switch in this game. Uh, you know, what's supposed to be happening out there? What do they need to do so that when they get, I don't even want to say junk defenses, but just, you know, when when things change on them and it's not the exact thing that they're expecting, you know, what, what do they have to do against, you know, zone, against switching, all these little things that, that, that they just completely keep stubbing their toe against? Yeah, so uh, first of all, to kind of just clarify my view, because there's a character limit on Twitter, obviously. Um, but my viewpoint is that the league – in general, like all the teams have just basically stopped running drop against the Hawks. So even teams that, yes, run, you know, uh, by it, their normal scheme is to drop, they stop. Teams have just stopped running drop. I mean, Trey was just murdering teams with his floater. And then when the big man has to maybe kind of challenge the floater, that opens up the lob. We, we saw that the first, I don't know, 25, 30 games of the year. That's how the kind of how the Hawks got to second in the league in offensive rating. And that's just, gone i mean i think the team that's most committed to drop now is philly and then right. even when the hawks have played them the last couple of times and bead has been um later in the game kind of getting all the way up to the level of screen with screen which is totally uncharacteristic so i i think the league has decided we're not dropping against trey young we're just not doing that anymore we're going to switch and and then it's the plan for the hawks seems to be okay, so Trey's going to draw the big out and kind of, you know, dribble and try to create one-on-one against the big. And and like any player, there are times when he has it going. There are times when he doesn't have it going. The concern that I have is that when he doesn't have it going, when he's not finding the space, you know, it feels like they're still trying to kind of uh, unlock that and kind of get him going as, as opposed to kind of moving on to another plan. I, I have to people respond on Twitter and I always appreciate those conversations, good people out there. Like Glenn, what should they do? And and th- this is just my view. Uh, obviously, I'm a, you know, my coaching experience is at the youth level. Uh, I I tend to watch even the NBA game, you know, largely through a kind of a, a coaching lens, if you will. But but in my mind, you know, I've said before that you know I don't know why they're not slipping screens more often. I don't know why they're not. Um, it felt like they did a fair amount of that yesterday, right? In the, the first, beast, yeah, it it disappeared. For whatever reason, I mean, they just they came out and did it a couple times right at the start of the third quarter, right. like to go at Bagley, and then right they and, and then after that, I mean, Dwayne Casey can coach some defense, and they were, but I mean, sure. the Pistons, Pistons are pulling guys in and kind of cutting off right. that that you know. So I don't I don't want to talk about this as if the defense never has anything sure. to do with kind of what the Hawks can do. Um, have agency. But, yeah, cutting cutting is to generally really effective against. Um, switching defenses you've seen recently a few like three or four times the last few games where um you know the hawks are setting up to run floppy uh and that's the one where one wing will start like under the basket and move up the floor on one side and the other wing will then work to the other side but their defenses are top locking that and tracer's making the pass over the top he's done that to hunter you know a couple of times so there you know right. you can you can make passes over the top because uh, typically teams that are switching are kind of are topping defenders that might come up and set that screen. Cutting uh, tends to work uh, really well. But to me, when you have Gallo mostly, Collins with his growth as a passer, putting that guy 
um, after the screen, kind of right at the top of the key, or at, and maybe as low as the nail, right in that area, and dropping the pass there and attacking downhill. Um, you know, typically when they're when they're switching, you have an opportunity while the switch is being executed, kind of uh, work the ball to someone kind of in that area, and then attack downhill. You know, four on three. You know, if it were you know, more traditional kind of pick and roll option, we call it short roll and it still kind of is the same thing. Um, but, you know, one, one thing we saw, you know, a couple of games ago was when uh, Hunter drew the switch when Hunter was playing at the four, when Collins was still out, especially, or okay. Collins was playing center his first game back is Hunter would take his man to the nail and Trey would give him the ball and Hunter would work from the nail. We see the Knicks do that with Julius Randle all the time. The Heat do that with uh jimmy butler a lot there are others but those are just kind of some examples but um you know they've tried all year long to attack mismatches when it's not trey attacking it by working that low to mid post teams are really really good at cutting that passing angle off now and most teams are are, are choosing to put the guy that they want to attack their smaller guy at the nail it's it, i was encouraged a few like two games ago um, when we saw that happening with Hunter and it's like, oh, he's not stuck down here near the baseline where, I mean, every team knows how they're going to double a guy in, 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 on the low block. That's very well calibrated. But when the guy's at the nail right in the middle of the floor, like where does the help come from? What's strong side? What's weak side? It, it kind of throws all that ambiguity. So I'm, I'm fatiguing of watching Trey try to dribble past bigs in isolation while the other four are standing around and watching. I'm fatiguing of watching Trey do that uh, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily trying to single out Trey. I mean, Trey is their creator. He is their offensive workhorse. So naturally, that's going to be where the analysis uh, flow kind of kind of comes from. But you know, and then to see like a, a herder catch the ball with four seconds on the clock, you know, uh, and then like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And all you basically can do at that point is herder's got a defender in front of him, and he's trying to take uh, a few dribbles towards the paint and kind of and kind of pull up. So I just would like to see them be more creative and implement more cutting, uh, figure out how to open up the slipping um, when that kind of gets cut off. I'd like to see them um, take one of the screeners and roll them towards the top of the key, uh, you know, use that pocket pass to that player and kind of attack four on three, especially if you have a shooter in each corner, that tends to go well. Um, but what I'm seeing is they're over dribbling and Trey is, is really trying to work the big man uh, in front of him and, for sure, he has games where he turns that into a, a 35, 38 you know, point performance and easily enough to, to win the game. There are other games like a, like against the Pistons where, you know, I think he, at one point he was one for eight on two-point attempts, and he was still trying to kind of dribble past the big man. And it's like, okay, at what point do you do you need to move on to another plan? So that that that's kind of where I am. I, I you know, I don't know how much to attribute this to kind of Nate's. Uh, philosophy that this is what a lot of the offense looked like in Indy. Um, you know, but he had mid range assassins there. He had Tyreek Evans, who was awesome in that game, and um, the other Bogdanovich and you know, Oladipo was you know, and so their roster is kind of kind of built for that. And and what what I feel like I'm watching is the Hawks kind of going through an offensive threshold where Trey is turning into an ISO scorer. Uh, and I feel like I'm watching. Um, someone kind of pursuing the Harden template of what we saw in Houston uh, his last couple couple years there, and and I can hear someone saying, "Well, Glenn Harden won an MVP, and Glenn Harden, what you know, 
was uh, a monster uh, of an offensive player, and that's true. But if you're trying to set yourself up for sustained sustained success, and and if you're a fan watching Hunter struggle to find their, a rhythm, Herder struggle to find their rhythm, Bogey is old enough and experienced enough to kind of work through this in a way that those two guys can't. Bogey's been awesome the last few weeks. Um, but I just want to see more ball movement. I want to see more intentionality. I want to see more creativity. And when Nate got a job last year, um, you know, kind of setting aside how any of us felt about whether LP should be replaced or not, this was kind of a concern I had. And this is not me saying I was right. I told you so. Because Nate was incredibly good uh, down the stretch last year. But this is where I also wonder, like, you know, are is this the result of not having Melvin Hunt on staff? Is this the result of having not having Marlon Garnett on the staff? Have they lost sort of um, kind of the offensive uh, thought leaders that they had from last year? I, I, I'm just asking the question. I don't know that. Right. Um, but I, I do know that they're not running nearly uh, as much stuff that really kind of emphasizes their strengths as they were last year. Now, I want to be clear. Part of that is that, the entire league has stopped running drop against Trey. So the right. Hawks might deserve some time to work through, you know, it, you know, they might need some time to work through this and figure out how they're going to solve for this. I, I feel like maybe they should, I, I don't know if I feel like they should be there and have a solve, but I feel like they should be further along than that looks like they are right now. All right. Uh, I have a theoretical question for you. Sure. So we're seeing a lot of situations where, you know, obviously the Hawks want to go to, you know, finding the mismatch when you sort of get the big small switch. Like if Trey's running pick and roll with John, all of a sudden Trey's being guarded by a big, you know, that's a quote unquote mismatch. Uh, same with, with John down on the post against the small guy mismatch. Is there value there in coming up? with like a rescreen, like, okay, John's being guarded by somebody that's, you know, a smaller guy. It's typically not the point guard that you don't see a lot, you know, teams often put somebody bigger on Trey, but you know, let's say it's a wing. Is there, you know, are, are you catching a guy out of situation, out of a, out of his comfort zone by saying, you know, okay, okay. We rescreen when John goes up to set that screen on a, on a big, all of a sudden, you know, you got this wing guarding John, and he's got to worry. Well, is Collins going to slip here? Is he going to roll? Is he going to make contact and roll? Do I am I going to have to jump back on Trey? Like, can, can they make some more daylight there, and, and maybe find some some creases where Trey gets to attack the initial person who is actually guarding him uh, with a little bit of daylight? I, I think they can, and. Um... Sorry, Zoom is killing us. I whatever you said, it could have been can or can't. So I don't know. <laughs> no, no worries. I, I think I think they can leverage. I think that's there for them to use. And I think that's a great question. It's a, I think it's a great observation. In addition to that, you were using John as an example. Clint is probably Clint may be the best rescreener and the most nuanced screener in the league. And you know, I've said before, it's not the it's not like I think Clint is this magician. I think Clint has benefited from running a million pick and rolls with James Harden during his, you know, developmental years, the kind of his coming of age years. And I think he, all of those reps, I mean, what center in the league, you know, in the last say eight years has had an opportunity to run 
um, you know, so many pick and rolls with a, you know, one of the greatest pick and roll guards of the history of the league and, and Clint's a good teammate and Clint listens. And, and when, you know, I would see when Harden was, would want this or that, that Clint would be like, okay, you know, he would come show up in this way or show up in that way. And so that's there. I, th- to me, it looks like what the obstacle is, is that Trey wants the big. And so that means Trey doesn't want the rescreen, right? He wants to draw that big right. out and, and get past the big. Uh, is is he is is he finding less success there because the ankles limiting him a little bit right now? That's hard for us to know. You know, right. um, the, is the stop start diminished a little bit uh, right now? That's hard for us to know. But I think the rescreen is definitely there. But you know, one of the reasons that I said I feel like I'm kind of watching late Houston Harden is you know Harden got to a, a point where he didn't want a center on the floor, right. You know, he didn't value that, and he, he kind of got, got past that. He just wanted four shooters to kind of spot up and then kind of give him all that space. And that's, you know, uh, that's as as people say passive-aggressively in Minnesota, that's one way to do it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, if you look at how this roster is built and how capable they are generating a ton of pressure on the rim, a ton of points at the rim, through that, I think they've got to stick with it and still try to, whether it's a rescreen to kind of get that um, second effort at kind of the big diving to the rim and Trey having the space and the angle that he wants. I, you know, I think that's definitely an option, Um, you know, but if we see Nate moving on to playing like closing games consistently with John and Gallo, their two best shooters, you know, at the, at the, you know, big positions, right. that's going to tell me that they're not so invested in that. If, if Clint's going to help close games and then if a Congo is going to have time with, with Trey or even with Lou, you know, however that kind of lines up, you know, that's going to, that's going to say a lot, you know, what does Trey want? Does Trey want to play with four shooters like late Houston Harden did? Does Trey still value to the degree that, you know, it's, it seems like he used to, the opportunity to kind of create really easy points at the rim uh, through his dynamic ability to attack uh, with angles and leverage that screens give him. It no doubt is harder to do that against a team. I won't say that just switching, but a team that's uh, switching effectively, you know, right. and, and like that Boston game, Boston, you and I talked, you know, Boston's doing as well as anybody right now. Sure. Right? For sure. Um, and, and, and that's what, choked off the Hawks offense in that game when they lost something like a 15 point lead and ended up losing that game. Um, But this problem is not going to disappear. Teams aren't going to just decide to go back to dropping against them. Right. So in my mind, and that's, that's why, you know, as frustrated as I am with their inconsistent defensive effort, you know, when I put that tweet out last night, I said, this is their biggest problem right now. In my view is that they're not going to see drop coverage anymore. And they've got to figure out how they want to attack teams that are um, going into games ready to switch the entire time Trey Young's on the floor. And, you know, there may be times when a team has a really slow big on the court uh, that where Trey can kind of have his way and, and, and do what he wants. And, and that's fine. There's going to be other times when there's these younger, you know, quicker bigs or team or teams that are kind of playing a four at the five, like Toronto does a lot, you know, as an example. Um, and even even Boston will kind of do a little bit of that too, where it's going to be a lot harder for trade to kind of um, have that same kind of success and take that same path to that success. So 
they have to figure this out. And I, I, I want to be honest and say, I worry that kind of Nate's not, you know, enough of an offensive innovator kind of to, to push them through this. Um, but that's just a view. I haven't, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm not making a prediction. I'm, what I'm saying is that this is a massive obstacle for them, a massive problem for them right now. They've got to work through um, if they're going to um, continue pushing to have, you know, more likelihood to land seven or eight than nine or 10 or God forbid uh, end up, you know, lower than that. So if the, if the core of this team stays together going into next year, is there something that you want the Hawks to have going into next season, knowing that the NBA landscape that's prepared for them is different. Yeah, I, I think it's the ability to play fast. I, it, to, in my, and it's one thing I didn't mention, but I, if you notice, kind of when Collins came back and he played all his time off the bench at the five, and I think that Congo was out that game. Just so happens to be moving Hunter up to the four and making Hunter a screener rather than a spot up guy and giving him the opportunity to catch the small guy and kind of go to the nail and things like that. And so I, I do think that um, Nate's teams have historically kind of dribbled the shot clock out a little bit and kind of really made, try to make a defense work the full 24 seconds. And there's, there's value in that. I'm not completely kind of setting that aside, but if a team, the team you're facing can get set consistently and they're, when they get set, they are really effective at preparing to switch and cut off everything that the Hawks have historically wanted to do with this core. One way to beat that is to play faster and to kind of get into your sets faster and, and try to catch a team kind of loading up ahead of a, a ball screen and switching it and have that cut or have that slip or whatever it is. And, and so the, typically when you play smaller lineups, you're capable of playing faster. So it might mean, even though I don't love the idea of JC defensively at the five for heavy minutes, um, but it, it could mean that, you know, a, a Kongwu is rising as the perfect center for that when they want to do that. Right. It could be more minutes for Collins at the five and, and maybe Hunter sliding up to the four. And I've never, I'm, we've talked before about how, when Hunter plays at the four, it's harder to put him uh, defensively on guard on the other team. So they have other issues to kind of sort through and work out. But I, I think setting themselves up to play faster, uh, and which they should be able to do with this lineup. I mean, Clint is really quick from the point of the screen to the rim uh, when that option is there. JC is lightning fast, as fast as any guy has positioned in the league, in my opinion. Um, and then when you have smaller guys, like you know, they played bogey at the four some recently and hunters obviously has a time at the four. So if, if they're going to kind of think about a roster adjustment from this year, next year, I think it's giving them more options to play smaller. Um, and that takes versatile defenders at the forward positions. It's kind of like Hunter and other guys like that, that can play down defensively at the one and the two or play up defensively all the way to the four and sometimes the five, if need be so that that's what I would be looking for um, is a roster construction that gives them a chance to, to play small, like a whole game. Uh, if, if that's what it takes. Yeah. I have kind of a similar idea that, you know, one of the things that's a little bit bothersome about this team is that they, they get their fair share of fast break points because they have, you know, one of the best defensive rebounders in the league in Capella. 
Trey is one of the best, you know, hit ahead passers that we've seen, you know, maybe in a, I don't, I, maybe you don't call it a generation. You, I'm sure you've seen lots of Kevin Love over the years. Um, but, and he, and he had an awful one against Detroit that was just a disaster. It was like the, like Trey's so good at that, that when you see him really mess one up, it's like, oh, but like, he's really great at those hit ahead passes. And, and they know that they have a great defensive rebounder in Capella. So, you know, Hunter and Herter get a whole lot of, of just sort of one man runouts. But what I want to see is more multi-man speed and transition. And it's not even that goal of, you know, getting the points because, you know, you're going to have to just kind of ease up a lot of the time, but they just, they don't play with that kind of tempo unless it's kind of that hit ahead one man fast break. They just don't have the sort of jailbreak fast break. And again, you know, it's the NBA teams get their transition defense back. They're going to stop you the majority of the time, but you know, there's that value in the scramble that teams don't get to set the defense exactly the way they want when you do that. And it just seems like they need more bodies invested in the fast break, actually pushing the tempo. And, and I don't know, what the balance is because you know you have to be careful it's it's hard to make those runouts because they're physically demanding and you know when you don't get the ball or when it doesn't lead to a quick basket but they just they need to do more of it there's not enough they need to keep you know they need to have people being guarded by people who weren't supposed to guard them and just not having the time to set up the way they want so that there are some scrambled matches when you get down the floor and, and they can do it. They just don't, they don't, they, they push the tempo, but not in that way that that ever happens enough. Yeah. They, to your point, they do it with kind of the single guy that's doing quote rim running right? and kind of posting it from the rim. Right. Yeah. One, one reason that often has mixed results is that I feel like the rim runner is the most tightly officiated kind of role in the league, because if you, the the main thing they'll call is if you use both elbows at all to kind of pin that defender behind you, they will call that in a second every single time. And Hawks fans may Man, remember you're, you're giving me 2015 16 flashbacks of I, Dwight, Dwight Howard to barely touching somebody, yep. and the referee's like, "No, you can't do that." Like he would do nothing. And he, I, I, I am and that, not a Dwight Howard fan. I'm not one of the people who says like, "Oh, he's got to be one of the 75 greatest players of all time." But man, I, I don't think he got a fair whistle. Like I, I just. You, you know me, like I'm the number one, hey, stop the moving screen BS. Right. And it, like Dwight was officiated so tight on that stuff that it just, it, it, yeah, I felt it, bad for him in that regard. And it's not just Dwight, like it, it, the whole, that yes. for whatever reason, that is really tightly officiated. So it's it's hard to execute a technique that doesn't, uh, you're, you're, you're risking collecting fouls when you do that. And it's hard to execute. Now what, I like I love the idea for the Hawks with the, the teams that do that best basically are trying to do three things at once. One is get a rim runner posted in front of the rim just to force the team to allocate a defender there. Um, and then put also have a guy sprint to the corner uh, to make the defense account for the guy there and then push the ball across half court and see if the opposing defense, as you push that, can get organized and get matched up who's corner who's ball who's rim 
and then you know who, then how's everyone else getting matched up and the the warriors when they were at their peak were the best at this like like clay would run to the corner um and even like iguodala would all the time rim run and kind of just take a defender down there and then draymond would kind of bring the, the ball across and often steph was either getting to the other side or kind of setting up to kind of kind of come into like drag action with dream on right, it if, exactly. if they cut that off and that that rim corner ball you know being you know driven right at the heart of the defense creates so much leverage and so much pressure on the defense to work through getting matched up correctly and the hawks have enough shooting you think about whether that's bogey or herder in the corner or hunter or what what have you For sure. and and just like with the warriors like it didn't it didn't have to be a center in doing the rim running. Iguodala would just run there and make sure that he dragged a defender with him, which opened up space in the middle of the floor. And just that kind of those three guys kind of creating, um, you know, that leverage is, is, is really helpful and useful. Um, you know, when, when you're pushing the ball and when that's what you kind of need, need to do, but you know, um, and year it's like two years ago, um, you would see like Alex Lynn's printing the corner. You know, there was a point that was an emphasis um, before this coaching change. And I don't want to relitigate the coaching change at, at, at all. I mean, it worked out obviously really well last year. I just feel like what's likely is that with the turnover amongst the assistant coaches, they've lost some of the areas of emphasis that used to be there for whatever reason. That that, that just seems like a, a likely thing. I'm not saying it's a, a sure thing or what ha- or have you, but it just seems like one of the most likely things is that some of those things that they used to do, some of those levers that they used to be able to pull kind of now and then um, when that was there, is it's just not there. And we're seeing the same stuff over and over and over. And then we'll hear Nate say all the time, we want to attack the mismatch. We want to find the uh, you know, favorable mismatch and attack it. Uh, and I think the league is ready for that. For when teams come in to face the Hawks, they kind of know what they're going to see. Uh, and I just think there's not enough variety. There's not enough, um, there aren't enough options. And they're not um, kind of finding, you know, secondary, tertiary ways to kind of attack uh, what those defenses bring in through getting set, getting ready to switch. You know, we've seen over and over and over and over, Trace drawing the big out. Trey's going at the big. Some games that's great. Some games it's not so great. And I think in my mind that um, kind of puts the outcome of the game into whether Trey had an efficient scoring night or not. And I think it really creates a disadvantage uh, when you need more offensively from your wings like Hunter or Herder. Um, like I said, Bogey's experience helps kind of work through what they're encountering. But, yeah. Um, and he also gets a, a chance to- I mean, in working with the bench, he gets just a different rhythm and a different feel. Like, I think that's helped him a lot. Like, you just get more touches on the ball, and I think that's that's been important for him to in working yeah, through that. But if you've seen and him watch, if, if you've seen him play in the international play, he he works that spot up weak side all the time, and the ball rotates to him, and he's either attacking the closeout or shooting. He has uh, like li- literally a million reps of that from international play. Yeah. He knows exactly what angle he wants. He knows exactly <laughs> when to go to the rim, exactly when to get the step back. You know, where I mean, Herder and Hunter to me, to me right now, it feels like a moving target. Like, okay, tonight you guys are going to be spotting up, or now we're going to kind of run some stuff to kind of get you when they run that slot pick and roll after the stack setup where they're attacking kind of, you know, pick and roll from the three point break. And, 
and, it, and I'm not saying that those guys shouldn't be playing uh, better and more consistently, but I'm just saying that I think that they're not consistently being set up for success from, from, from my view. So I, I, I want to see more variety. I want to see more creativity from the Hawks offensively. Um, and I know people say, Hey Glenn, they're still second in the league in offensive rating. Um, but you know, what teams are doing is uh, the Hawks, watching the Hawks kind of have success in the first half. Then as the defense kind of gets a feel for how to in, induce the Hawks into kind of a really predictable way of attaching the matchup, it's that as the game progresses, the Hawks have a harder and harder and harder time producing their offense. And then obviously the Hawks aren't a top 10 defense, so they need that offensive output. So right. that's just, you know, I feel like that's where they are. I hope they solve it. I'm concerned that they're not as far along as I, it seems like to me they should be, but that's why we watch the games. We'll see if they can uh, kind of make some progress here in the next week or so. Milwaukee likes to drop. Are we, are we going to see uh, <laughs> a throwback game? Or, or we, we, you, we might. Do you think that they, uh, do you think that they'll get switchy with uh, Bobby Portis and, and company? I mean, you know, could be, um, but Milwaukee played tonight, so they'll be on second night back to back tomorrow, right? Uh, they play tomorrow, right? Yeah, they play yeah, tomorrow. Okay. I just want to make sure they, they, they got to go from OKC to Milwaukee, but OKC didn't play anybody tonight. Uh, they right. Shea, but like that was it. Like they had like seven of their main guys out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. In, they put up a, a, a million points and Thanasis was still trying to score with a <laughs> bug me anyway. Um, but you know, the Milwaukee might mail it in, in that they're on the second night of a back-to-back and, and that they, they run drop coverage as their, their core thing. Um, to your point where they, one reason they really value Portis in the times they can't play him at the five is that he can, he's really good getting up to the level of the screen. So my guess is they'll start with the drop. And then if the game is close, as we get it kind of into the second half, we'll see a more aggressive uh, coverage and, and maybe some some more switching there. Um, I I was watching some of that Milwaukee and uh, OKC game tonight. And it was, yeah, I mean, I still root for Bembry a ton. I still pull for him like crazy. Um, but Bud had Bembry and Javon Carter on the court at the same, at the same time. I was wondering, <laughs> uh, you know. Wait, was, if, it, was that the backcourt or is there somebody out there that, uh, I, they were, uh, I think the two and the three, maybe, okay. and, you know, I, 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 I think maybe on there with Drew. Um, but, um, you know, I was, I was just imagining our, our good friend, Brad, you know, doing somersaults, like they see Jalen Carter and Dondre Benbury on the court at the same time for the same team. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think if I had to guess, like, I think they'll come out, start dropping. And then if it's a close game, they'll, uh, kind of make their way more towards a switching base scheme in the second half uh, to kind of try to choke off what the Hawks are doing there. So that, that'd be my guess, but it might be an opportunity to get see Trey versus a drop for a couple quarters tomorrow night. Yeah. Maybe that helped me get a good rhythm. Well, I appreciate you uh, jumping on to do this. And uh, as always, it was fun. Yeah. My, my pleasure. Uh, I hope it, hope it was more fun than, than jury duty is even though again that's super important it's just that the procedural kind of part of sitting around waiting for uh you know you you to be uh called upon is um a little mundane 
I mean, uh, I'm hoping for a game tomorrow that is more exciting than jury duty because Hawks Pistons just barely cleared the bar. That that was the my I think that was my roughest watch of the year. I was so frustrated. Um, but you know, perspective, you know, life and all that sort of stuff. And uh, you know, and you know me, I'm optimistic and I'm a upbeat person, so I'm gonna hope they are solving for these issues, uh, even though I have to be honest and say I'm concerned. So that's where I am right now. We'll see what happens against the Bucks. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Kevin.